This is the Authority Partners Podcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Mirano Galiasevic. I'm working for Authority Partners, uh, head of R&D. And uh, with me is uh, Steve Smith, also known as Ardalis. Uh, he is a founder and principal architect at uh, Nimble Pros. Nimble Pros uh, helps teams uh, build better software faster. And they are, they are generally helping financial companies migrate to cloud-native architecture. So, Steve, uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm really honored to have you in this podcast. Oh, thanks, for it's good to talk to you again. Okay, thank you very much. The discussion uh, about uh, this podcast is to discuss about um, uh, cloud design patterns and uh, uh, architecture in general, but mostly focusing on the microservices architecture. And uh, the most interesting thing would be to actually hear your personal experiences with it and uh, to tell us firsthand uh, what you think works and what, what does not. So having that in mind, can we maybe uh, start off with uh, uh, briefly discussing the monolith versus microservices approach today. Just as a real quick background and and architecture, you know, monolithic architecture is, is basically where the whole app is running in one process and, and usually lives on one server. Maybe there's a database involved separately, but you distribute it essentially as a unit. And then with the microservices architecture that's growing in popularity, uh, you generally have a lot of much smaller applications uh, that need to coordinate and communicate with one another somehow. And the, the, the big push to go to microservices is, is being driven by uh, one, the cloud, which makes it much easier to build and distribute this, these types of apps. But also if your application's needs grow beyond a certain point, uh, it becomes difficult to continue to uh, vertically scale and, and oftentimes even horizontally scale your full monolithic app. Uh, and so microservices provide a way to, to grow beyond a certain point. The way the way actually I, I feel about this uh, is that, I mean, I, I've seen it progressing through decades, you know, we, we, we are moving uh, slowly and I would say in, a, in, a, in the right direction. But uh, in, in my mind, microservices approach is kind of a, an evolution, not definitely not a revolution, but evolution of the uh, SOA approach that, that, that we had uh, and that was really very popular and uh, really uh, made us much more efficient than, than before. Would you, would you agree to that statement? Yeah, I think it's definitely evolved from service-oriented architecture or SOA, and, and it's just a, a matter of you know taking SOA to sort of the uh, extreme programming approach of taking it to the extreme and, and making it so you have microservices instead of you know larger-grained uh, services that that are that are bigger. You know, the focus on on doing small units of work uh, in each microservice and having the responsibility to be very finely tuned. Uh, I think is the biggest thing that that separates a microservice from a standard, you know, SOA-like service. I agree, and I think it would be beneficial to to maybe mention, and and only if you agree. I think that the monolith approach, it's it's still not. I mean, there are circumstances, there are specific use cases when monolith would would work well. I mean, it's not like uh, we have to abandon that uh, for good. And it's only microservices, uh, and I'm I'm not being exclusive over there. Uh, do you have the same opinion, or maybe you see it differently? No, absolutely. I think uh, most applications being built today. Should should probably be built as monoliths, especially if they're greenfield, you know, new projects. Because if you build the monolith in in the right way, if you build it using you know, a clean architecture approach where the dependencies are, are you know well defined and, and well understood, it's not that difficult to take a, a modular monolith with with loose coupling and, and dependencies that are well understood 
and and start to split that up into microservices if and when it becomes necessary. But starting with microservices in many cases is a form of premature optimization. That's an interesting uh, statement because I see people start with microservices approach right away over there. Okay, this goes also in line with, uh, you know, people people would uh, say, oh, yeah, you have to have a domain model, you have to have, you have to uh, do like uh, domain-driven design and then one of the most popular, uh, this is like a, like, like a DDD pattern and then uh, one of the most uh, um, like like uh, used approaches is like uh, doing domain model. But sometimes you just don't need it. You know, if something is rather small and, and, and simple, then doing that would be like an overkill. So it's all about the trade-offs, I, I would say. The architect, they need to understand when they uh, need to move away from monolith to microservices. Also, if uh, a specific microservice is implemented, then would they really start with with uh, and and uh, uh, do the domain model even if there is there isn't so many concerns that microservice tackles right it's all about trade-offs and 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 artists should be really smart and really thought it uh, beforehand before going into into the implementation i would say yeah certainly it is for sure all about trade-offs in architecture um and and there's a whole classification of apps that that need to be built that help businesses run that are essentially CRUD, you know, create, read, update, delete uh, of, of some backend data. And domain-driven design and certainly microservices are totally overkill for that scenario. I mean, you're, you're basically talking about, you know, many, many business processes are, are run in Excel or something close to Excel, and they just need to get Excel into uh, something that's hosted and maybe they can use it from multiple devices. Uh, and, and, you know, to be able to take sheets in Excel, turn them into tables in a database and give them a grid or some other simple UI to be able to edit that doesn't require microservices, doesn't even require DDD. Uh, and you could probably, you know, script that and generate it with uh, uh, some, some tools for rapid application development that would generate the UI for you uh, and be done in a matter of, of weeks instead of months or years like some of these larger projects. Yeah, I guess I guess it is all about the trade-offs, so, so I agree. When we come to that, so for the microservices today, it is, I mean, we since we are using it for uh, several years already, but now I, I think, uh, at least the way I see it, Every year, the, this implementation is like kind of booming. Everybody's moving over there, and 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 we have like uh, more and more projects just uh, moving. Uh, legacy projects uh, trying to re-architect the existing systems and and move them toward microservices. So the new ones that are starting, there are very few chances that people will go with anything else but employing this architecture. Do you think that it's a generally good approach, or there is no rule? You know, it just depends on the situation. I, I definitely wouldn't say always do anything and I think you would agree with that uh, you know the the standard it depends uh, is 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 still gonna be there but I do think that it's easier now to, to create and deploy and, and manage microservices than it ever was in the past I mean the other factor in the industry I think that's that's moving us in that direction is we we aren't uh, dealing with physical machines very often in fact we aren't even dealing with virtual machines anymore for the most part we're dealing with containers that just wrap you know like docker containers that just wrap a single process uh, and then on this on the hosting side you know we don't have to manage physically uh, the data center and all those devices ourselves even uh, you know we have things like um, serverless now where you can just take a function a unit of code and and you know throw it out there and host it on Azure or AWS uh, and and that's the unit of deployment now is down to a, a function, a service. It's much, much easier than it ever has been as far as the cost uh, to build and develop and deploy 
these types of, of micro units of functionality. I don't think your whole system has to be necessarily a microservices architecture for you to get the benefit of being able to take some parts of it and deploy those as independent services. I see that quite a bit. So kind of a hybrid approach in there. That's right. As you Americans say, there is no such thing as free lunch. So I guess <laughs> uh, there are advantages to using microservices, but there are also disadvantages. Uh, the, one, the, the one that I see often is like, uh, it is really challenging uh, to provide communication between microservices. And also when you have really complicated workflow, like a business workflow that you need to implement that touches upon dozens of microservices, it is really challenging on how you actually orchestrate that. Uh, so because there are different concerns over there, first of all, each microservices is uh, uh, ideally, it is aligned with the bounded context, which which is which is a term from domain-driven design, right? And uh, ideally, right. it would be like that. So we, we want microservices to be autonomous. You know, we do not want microservices to be tightly coupled with anything. Otherwise, the whole point of the architecture is lost because we cannot bring them down and deploy new versions and everything. So uh, also uh, in the background, there is like uh, some kind of message broker because we still need uh, to communicate in between them. And uh, this is like uh, one, one of the tenants in, in, the, in the distributed architecture is to use some kind of, uh, of message broker. So there are a lot of challenges over there. And probably the biggest one is how do you really separate the uh, execution steps or there, let's say you have 20 microservices or 50 microservices or I don't know, is, is, is that realistic? But okay, 20 microservices is definitely realistic. So if there's a like medium level a complicated uh, business workflow and you need to uh, to have like, I don't know, let's say 20 steps, you know, that, that will go and uh, 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 each microservices is going to have to do their part, but there's also a temporal concern, you know, something you cannot do something before you have gotten results from some other microservices. So uh, often it gets really complicated. So generally there are two approaches, orchestration versus choreography, and they are really kind of different. So what do you think about this? Because this is kind of, for me, this is the, okay, you use microservices, there are many benefits, but uh, first you kind of, this is like a landmine, you know, you, you hit it uh, very soon, you know, and uh, then how to deal with it. What do you think from your experience uh, is the best approach? I think you can easily start out with choreography when you just have a couple of services, a small number. Um, and so let's say you start out with a monolith and you've carved off a microservice to do some specialized function. And so the monolith, you know, maybe it raises an event or, or it puts a message on a, on a message bus and the service picks it up and it does whatever it's supposed to do. Uh, and then it maybe it drops a message back that the uh, original app, the monolith picks up and sees, okay, it, it completed successfully or, or it didn't. Um, and, and that's uh, how things work with, with just choreography where just the messages are the workflow and, and the services know what to do because they see those messages. When, when you start adding two or three or four or more of those things and they start talking to each other, not just to the monolith directly, now it starts to get more complicated and, and the actual workflow of the steps that need to happen in the order in which they're supposed to occur is not explicit anywhere typically in that architecture. It's in the messages. If you want to change the workflow, you need to change what messages you're sending by whom and then what they're doing when they get them. Right? But you don't have like one method or one place, one config file that you can go to that says, here is the logic, here is the workflow, here's what depends on what. Uh, 
if, if you are moving from a monolith to microservices, usually the monolith will, will act as the orchestrator. It will call the first service, make sure it's good or not, then call the second one, et cetera. Uh, if you start moving away from that and you just have a, a full microservices architecture, then it, it is helpful to have an orchestrator, if only to be able to better visualize and understand what's going on, I think. I have exactly the same feeling uh, about, about this, but uh, it's kind of the jury is still out there. I mean, there is no definitive decision on, on this, but people tend to uh, lean toward uh, uh, either uh, of, of these, and they are really stick to it, you know. So, so I, I, I also think that it depends, or as, as everything, as you said, it depends. But uh, still, uh, here's here's my personal experience with it uh, using the choreography. Uh, yeah, it makes things more simple. You do not have the orchestrator. There is nobody up there, like like you know, controlling everything. So this is like much more in line with the uh, kind of the idea of of uh, having microservices that are uh, totally unaware of of each other. You know, and somebody else is kind of choreographing the uh, the the steps that need to be executed in order to achieve the uh, the goal of whatever the business flow is. But then again, uh, and also there is this like notion of orchestrator being uh, coming from the saw which is true you know like it's older than this new approach you know so so it is true still on the orchestration part and i i don't know uh, if, if you agree with this but on the orchestration part there, there is important thing like like you can you can execute sagas over there so you have f full control over there and then since each step over there has uh compensations then you you can employ the compensatory mechanism in order to uh revert back uh any number of steps if something fails like like mm -hmm. in, in in like like you have 10 microservices and then seventh microservice fails you can roll back uh, and and uh recreate the state as it was before it started executing so this is not easy to achieve if you have choreography and uh, the second biggest challenge for me uh and and where i would still go with the orchestration versus choreography is like when you uh, employ choreography then you are basically building a, a part of the uh, of the of the flow into the microservices so yeah they are going to execute uh, that way but you you somehow have to have uh, the overall control over those and slowly you will have to kind of uh, add functionality in each of those microservices so that they can execute uh, in a, like like a part of the workflow uh, of the business workflow which is something above over there abstract for 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 the microservices they they don't have the insight in all of that they are just doing a part of the work uh, and then slowly you are as you're moving you're progressing you know uh, the software is uh, kind of uh, getting older, one, two, three, five years, you know, uh, there will be a bunch of those, you know. And then when new people come to work, you know, uh, it would be really for them in order to understand what's going on and, and to, to acquire the knowledge of, of, of how the system works, they would have to be hopping in between microservices in order to catch uh, what goes where and what is executed in which microservice in order to have to get a full picture. While the, in the orchestrator, even though it is a little bit uh, uh, like a, a clunky implementation, choreography is much more kind of lean and, 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 and uh, kind of elegant, uh, I agree, but but still, if you look at the orchestrator, you know, there is a number of steps over there and you can easily figure out what's going on. And then you can dive in down there and, and kind of go into the details. So, so this is kind of 
my view of, of all this. So, which is pretty similar, I would say, uh, with, with what you, with, with your experiences. That's right. I don't think we disagree. I mm. mean, the thing about it is, somewhere in your application, if you have rules for things like what to do when failures happen, and they will, those rules have to live somewhere. If you are doing choreography, every service needs to have some information in it baked into its logic of what to do when something fails. If it needs to do a compensating transaction in another microservice, right, then it needs to know how to kick that off. It needs to fire off another message or make some synchronous call to that other microservice or whatever it is. And instead of that recovery logic being in one place in the orchestrator, now it's spread out into every different microservice. And if you add another uh, process that, you know, another workflow that has some more logic like that, you now have to touch every microservice that's involved potentially uh, in order for it to be able to properly handle with those error states. Whereas if you had the orchestrator, you could have each one of those microservices do what it does. And if there's a problem, just, you know, let you know, right? It gives you some type of response that tells you there was a problem. And then it's the orchestrator's single responsibility to do whatever it needs to do in response to that that error. You have mentioned the clean architecture approach. Could you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I really want uh, people uh, listening to this podcast to, to understand it because I think it's, uh, it's, it's a great uh, help for anybody starting in that direction. Sure. So, so clean architecture is, is something that's been around for a while. I didn't invent the term. It's, it goes by a bunch of different names, uh, onion architecture, ports and adapters, uh, hexagonal architecture. Are, are all different names it's had over the last couple of decades. And it's just a way to structure an application, not, not a distributed application, but a, a, a monolithic application, so that it has uh, some, some composition to it where the domain logic, the business logic, lives in the core of the application and, and doesn't depend on any of the implementation details like a database or API calls or the file system, right? It's just logic, it's just code. And then it exposes uh, abstractions or interfaces or ports and adapters, calls them ports, for the different types of dependencies that it needs. So if it needs to talk to a database to do persistence, it's going to expose an interface that is for persistence. And then you can create an implementation of that, an adapter uh, that knows how to talk to a particular persistence provider, whether that's SQL Server or MongoDB or a file system, it doesn't matter. Um, But you plug it in, right? It's a plug-in architecture. Uh, And what this does is it follows the dependency inversion principle from solid principles. It makes it so that your implementation details, the low-level logic, depends on the high-level abstractions in your business model. Uh, And I see clean architecture as a great way to build loosely coupled systems that are very easy to test, very easy to change. Uh, And microservices in particular um, are are great to set up like this if they have any complexity to them at all. I mean, if they're super trivial, then yeah, just make it an Azure function or something and deploy it serverless. But if it's got some actual complexity involved in it, which most of them do, then a very small clean architecture style solution uh, you know, Visual Studio solution, if you're building things with Microsoft, um, can be the way to go. And I have an open source uh, solution template that you can grab from GitHub that basically lets you get started and it has all the patterns and things you need. And all the projects in it are depending on one another in the proper direction. And so it's very hard for you to do the wrong thing because the core project uh, is, is not you know, something that depends on anything else. And your infrastructure project, which is where you put your your adapters that talk to external uh, dependencies, it depends on the core project. And so you're not going to get that dependency wrong 
because Visual Studio won't let you create circular dependencies or, or have dependencies in the wrong direction. Thank you. Uh, I, I've used it and I think it's great. Uh, I think definitely everybody should check it out and it's uh, available on, on GitHub, right? That's right. Uh, slash yeah. Dallas slash clean architecture. There's also one, uh, I think, um, one one more important thing, which is which is kind of a general nature, but it, it's really, uh, in my opinion, uh, people have different approaches over there. I mean, when you when you ask them, they even come up with a very strange uh, solution. So it's like kind of a cornucopia of awkwardness, you know. I, I I would say, you know, there there you can hear everything over there. What is your opinion uh, about how to actually start? If there are architects uh, who really want to start with this, where would they start from? So the the questions they they usually ask is is like two: should they go serverless or, or containers? Containers seems to be um, at least in my experience, uh, people kind of uh, find them intimidating to certain extent. And uh, uh, this is serverless. Uh, obviously, um, it is it is much easier. But then what do you gain? What, what, what do you lose? This is like uh, one question. And the second question, uh, are there any good like platforms or frameworks over there? I, I know there is like Dapper, D-A-P-R which uses that uh, sidecar implementation supported by Microsoft. They, they, they have released first version, so they, they are kind of production ready, uh, and they, they can help with, uh, uh, with uh, building the microservice architecture. There's also TI, T-Y-E, right, uh, uh, framework. Well, actually, uh, they, they say it's a tool. Uh, that, that's how they uh, think of it. Uh, it is available over there, but then it's, uh, it's geared toward toward Kubernetes and uh, reusing the existing uh, networking infrastructure of Kubernetes uh, in order to kind of uh, provide a a, a playground for building microservices architectural solutions. So what do you think? Uh, First question is serverless versus containers. And the second one is, would you you start like uh, um, hitting your solutions off how you want to do it? If you were an an architect or would you use any uh, of the existing uh, frameworks or tools uh, for that purpose? For for me personally, I I usually start with containers and that's because uh, I can run them locally very easily versus serverless. They don't have any vendor lock-in. So if, if it hasn't already been decided which cloud vendor or whatever might host the solution, uh, I don't have to make that decision up front. I can make that decision later, uh, and I can change my mind if it turns out that one of them is going to be a lot more expensive. Uh, whereas if I'm choosing serverless, I'm usually locked into Amazon Lambda, Azure Functions, whatever that might be. Uh, and it's gotten a little bit better where at least they, they both support the same set of languages, but the uh, the, the the calls that you have to use, the, the frameworks that are available, um, are still going to be different between them to some extent. So it, will, it won't be as easy to shift as uh, Docker containers. So, so my, my usual uh, starting point is, is containers um, for that reason. I've also run into issues when you try and use serverless uh, and there, there's that startup time from a cold start. And so if you're using it in the actual process of a user request, where you want that user request to complete in you know a couple hundred milliseconds, uh, if you happen to, to to need to scale up and spin up a new serverless um, instance in order to support that, um, that's that oftentimes can take you know multiple seconds, uh, and so you you either have to keep those all running uh, so that that never happens, uh, which is then eliminating one of the benefits, which is that you only pay for what you use, um, or you just got to be okay with the fact that sometimes you're going to hit that cold start and have that performance hit. And so at that point, I, I mostly prefer to use them for things that are not 
inside of the the UI experience of a user, but something that's a background task that gets kicked off. So so that's that's the serverless versus containers, at least from my perspective. What do you think, Murano? No, I, I agree. Yes. Uh, so so that one is like I mean I mean if you were to use uh, functions that way, then you might as well go with the uh, op services. Like uh, the one of the benefit is that you really pay for just for the time that they are running, you know. Uh, right. But yes, uh, if it's in a context of a request that needs to return, then uh, no, but uh, you're totally right. Uh, if you are doing something uh, in order to achieve the eventual consistency uh, in, in the microservices, which is usually how it should work, then then yes, uh, functions can be can be uh, a good choice. But people just use it because of the simplicity. I I, I would say, uh, but yes, that is one uh, of the big uh, downsides of, of going serverless. Containers, uh, I I think they they look as I said intimidating to to people, and you you kind of really need to learn. Uh, a lot. The learning curve is is really steep. If if you are just starting with with containers and everything, but then later on you 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 learn to appreciate the benefits of it. I I would say so. I I would agree with you. So what about the the, the frameworks? Do you think uh, there is something over there that uh, that is worth looking, or it just depends on people's preferences? I haven't personally investigated. Project Tie that much. I've, I've seen some presentations on it and it looks interesting, uh, but I haven't used it on a real project yet. Uh, Dapper uh, is getting some traction and, and uh, does have some uh, folks that are that are definitely using it, uh, and it provides some good services if you're using Kubernetes. So you know, I've, I do see Dapper being being used. Uh, for a lot of folks, they're still just building everything by hand. Uh, with .NET Core, that's that's easier than it's been because it's it's you know with with full framework .NET, uh, it was Windows only, and you had to host things on iOS, etc. Uh, all that stuff is in the past now, and pretty much everybody's on .NET 5, moving to .NET 6, and and reaping the benefits of being able to run on Linux and and running a much smaller uh, system. So, a lot of the companies that I'm working with have. Uh, a bunch of legacy code. A lot of it's written in .NET uh, and is not built to run in containers or to run in the cloud. And so that's what I, I help them with. Uh, and actually, I wrote a book for for Microsoft on how to how to do this, how to how to modernize your code and move it to the cloud. Uh, that's a, a free ebook. But you know, that's that's what we help with is is how to get from that that more legacy approach to something that can use microservices and containers and the cloud uh, without having to just push all your your legacy stuff up as virtual machines, which which gets very expensive. Great, yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you for this insight. So this was a really uh, interesting discussion. I think these topics are really uh, all like hot topics these days, and I'm glad we had a chance to to have this uh, short talk to discuss them. Thank you very much for uh, being part of this uh, podcast. Thanks a lot, Marana. I'm happy to to be on anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Authority Partners podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.